Welcome to AmiSites, a podcast that offers you access to thought leaders who can help you expand your entrepreneurial toolbox. Learn from seasoned entrepreneurs who have already walked in your shoes and can help you with your day-to-day business decisions. With your host, Ami Kassar. Ami is the founder and CEO of Multifunding, an advisory company that helps you grow and stay in control of your business. Hello and welcome. My name is Ami Kassar, founder and CEO of Multifunding. Since 2010, Multifunding has helped businesses achieve their biggest growth goals through creative and personalized funding solutions, working with hundreds of lenders across the nation. Joining us today is my friend, Deb Gabor. Deb is the founder and CEO of Soul Marketing, a strategy-led marketing firm obsessed with solving major business and branding problems for clients in every industry. Our main topics will focus on branding in this current world, best cases and worst cases of company responses to the pandemic, and her new beau, Sean. Welcome, Deb. Hi, Ami. My new beau, Sean. (laughs) You couldn't let that go, could you? You tried to fix me up with your friend. It didn't work out. So now you're going to out me to the entire world. So, Deb, what are you sitting on? Oh, let me show you. Sitting, sitting on a chair that says Bon Appetit yeah. and not one, but two needlepoint chicken pillows. <laughs> okay. Because just... as you know, I'm a diminutive human and I can't reach the table. And when I'm not Boy's sitting bay. on these Boy's chicken pillows bay. here, I put them in the front seat of my car so I can see over the dashboard. Okay. So Deb, probably we think we're funny, but random listeners might not think we're that funny so we either have to decide are we just going to try to be funny today or are we going to try to be serious you can ask me questions and the answers will be funny like serious funny because i can't be any other way aha how are you today you know what i'm terrific i'm i'm really happy to be here and uh i love that you're doing a podcast i think that's cool i think that's like a good expression of the Ami Kassar multi-funding growth dilemma brand. It, you are becoming like the Oprah of the business world. Ah, my new book that's coming out called Ami Sites. Ami Sites, which Ami Sites, they're sort of like Devonars. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Tell us about your life for people who are now confused by this conversation and want to know what you do. All right. I am in the business of creating the condition that I call irrational loyalty. And what irrational loyalty is, is the condition where people are so indelibly bonded to your brand that they'd feel like they were cheating on you if they were to choose an alternative. So Ami, you use an iPhone, right? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. I've owned like every iThingy ever made, including the iPhone. And I've had like every iPhone that's ever come out. That's because I'm irrationally loyal to the Apple brand. And so how that translates is that um, people I know who use Android phones and no offense to people who use Android phones, but you're totally wrong. When I receive your text messages and I see the green text bubbles show up on my phone, I feel twitchy. There's absolutely nothing rational about that. And what irrational loyalty is, it is the condition where brands are able to endure any kind of crisis, any kind of problem that would face their brand. It is the condition that allows brands to charge a premium for their product, even when the functional and emotional benefits of the product don't supersede those of their competitors. And it's the thing that allows businesses to scale very rapidly with a lot of focus. And that condition is available both to business to business brands, 
as well as consumer brands, and not just for high-end brands, but also for brands that are, are available to people, average people like you and me, although there's nothing average about you. Nor you, Deb. Thank you. Mutual admiration society here. So how does a company achieve that? So irrational loyalty, I, I boil it down to just four important things. And so if people are listening to this and you're taking notes, these are the four main things that you need to know about creating that condition of irrational loyalty. The first is to aim your brand at a singular, singular, that's a hard word for me to say, singular, ideal archetypal customer. What I mean here is the North Star customer who is most highly predictive of your success as an organization. And I know a lot of people here uh, probably are, they have business to business brands and they sell in complex business decision-making environments. The goal here is to figure out what's the first domino to fall. What is the most important person that you have to influence in the process of making an emotional connection? with the person who is buying your product or service. So the first thing, aim your brand at a singular ideal archetypal customer. And then steps two, three, and four, they're pretty easy. Step two is to become part of that person's identity, become part of who that person is. So Ami, have you ever identified as say like a Coke person or a Pepsi person or a Mac or a PC? Coke, PC, any surprises there? No, no, no surprises there. Yeah, no surprises and you? there. So, and me, I, uh, I'm a Coke person. Like if, if driven to choose, I'm a Coke person and, uh, I'm an Apple person. I already confessed that there. I work in a creative field and it's sort of the de facto standard. And also I like what it says about me, the brands that we love, the things that we use, that we eat, that we drink, that we drive, the computers that we use, the business services that we hire for our companies are all part of the person that we are. If you've ever identified, uh, unnecessarily with a terrible sports team. Like I'm a fan of the Cincinnati Bengals and they are terrible. And week after week after week, they break my heart during football season. You guys get that, right? That is when a brand becomes part of the person who you are. Step, so that's step one, and you're branded a singular ideal archetype of customer. Step number two, become part of who that person is. Step number three, be singular, be unique. The best brands in the world are not just different. And so you hear marketers out there today talking about you have to be differentiated. The only meaningful differentiation is uniqueness. To be a legendary brand, you have to be able to stand alone. You have to be singular. And so I think of a lot of brands out there in the world that are singular. They are unimitatable. Even if the functional and emotional benefits of the brand can be imitated by competitors, the brand itself cannot be imitated, right? And so that's step number three. And then the final step, is to make the brand not about you, but about your customers. Brands are about the people that use them. And the way that you do that is by answering the question of, how does my brand make my customer a hero in their own story? So everybody who's listening to this, like get out your phone or get out your computer, go to your company website. If the first words on the company website are either your company name or the word we, you're doing it wrong. So that's kind of in a nutshell, the foundation of creating that condition of irrational loyalty. And irrational loyalty is that emotional bond. It's like the bond that I have with you, Ami, where we are connected deep in our hearts and we are bonded in such an indelible way that no matter how much you piss me off, I'm not gonna kick you out. I'm not gonna like throw you out of my house when you do a bad job of loading the dishwasher or you know when you're unnecessarily mean to me in public or anything like that. 
It is the thing that makes interpersonal relationships endure. The same is true of brands. Okay, cool. So now we're going to do a test to see how well Dev Gabor knows me. Oh, boy. I got a car. I finally caved in. I got a car that I thought was cool. So what did I get? You know, I don't remember the answer to this question because I think I laughed at you and then I just like erased it from my no, mind. No, you're not supposed to remember. You're supposed to think about the brands of cars. The and brands me, of cars that you would like? Okay. And me um, and try to think what I would get. I think you... Uh, See how good she is, folks. It's a BMW something. Wrong. It's a Ford F-150 because that's what I drive. Wrong. Um, One more try. Hmm. Is it a is it a Miata? Is it a Mazda Miata? Wrong, but close. Okay. Two thousand six. Two thousand six Audi TT. Oh, two thousand six Audi TT. All right. With red So, seats. what do you think that says about you? You what tell me. What does that me. say about you? You tell me. Um, it says a guy is going through his second childhood. Yeah. Um, yeah. I got a I got a license plate on it. It says C T A N W. You know what that stands for? No. Is that appropriate for mixed company? Yes. Cheaper than a new wife. There you go. Yes, definitely a a man going through his second childhood slash midlife crisis, right? Okay, enough silliness. Tell me about what brands you have seen respond to COVID and you go, they got it right. Um, you know, there's there have been a lot of brands like over the course of the pandemic who who got it right, more that got it wrong. I let me talk for a minute about, you know, sort of a trend that was going on and why we ended up in this world where some brands were able to do a really good job of enduring the COVID crisis and other brands didn't. People were looking for leadership during this time and people look to brands to tell them who to be, where to stand, how to act, what to think, you know, what to buy, uh, what they should align with, the causes that they say they should support and things like that. And at the beginning of the pandemic, there were many brands that kind of hopped to it and they were able to stand up and act in a really authentic way. And sometimes the way that they acted authentically was that they didn't know exactly what to do and they said as much. I think about brands like Denny's is a brand that I that I really admire. I know the chief marketing officer at Denny's and a lot of people have been critical of the Denny's brand. Like this is the CMO who took over the brand to really, really reinvent the brand. If you remember a couple of years ago, they had some problems where uh, a couple of their stores were discriminating against people of color and LGBTQ people coming into their stores. And Denny's like really, really dug in deep to understand like what the core DNA of their brand was. And if you've gone to a Denny's restaurant, you've probably seen on the sign, it says always open. And one of the things that they did as part of their like sort of reignition of the brand was bring back this idea of always open and always open isn't just that the store is open 24 hours a day and uh, the manager doesn't even have a set of keys. It was this idea that Denny's was created to give everyone a place to come and it's always open. 
And so when you fast forward through the pandemic, Denny's is a brand that showed up in a really, really authentic way. One of the things that they did, and they had been doing this before the pandemic, was they have a big 18-wheeler that drives all over the country. And when there are natural disasters or there are crises that happen in different parts of the United States, they take this 18 wheeler that's equipped with commercial kitchens in it and they bring it to a site and they feed people. And one of the ways that I think that this brand showed up very strongly during COVID is they didn't have to change anything about what they were already doing. They dug into what their brand already stood for and they went out there they leaned hard into it and they did more of it other brands that did a great job during covid were the brands that bridged the gap between people being able to use their products i mean there were a lot of products and services that we couldn't use during the pandemic right and there were many brands out there that turned on a dime and they looked at their relationship with their customers through a lens of helping instead of selling and created lots of incredible content to engage communities of people, to serve their customers, to ignite these relationships that they had with their customers, even when their customers couldn't throw down money to buy their products. And I think of a lot of, I, I actually think of a lot of really small brands, like some of the brands that I love. And one of the brands that I like to point out is, it's a teeny tiny brand that a lot of people don't know unless they are in the snow sports industry or they're avid skiers and snowboarders, but it's this little shop in Southern Colorado called powder seven. And they did such a good job. Like we lost our ski season for, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we just lost it completely. And one of the things that they did was they created and shared tons and tons of inspirational and useful content with people everything from the ski lifts are closed this season you can't get out there and ride the lifts but here's what you need in order to do backcountry skiing safely they shared lots of like really inspirational ski content like ski movies big lines for people to watch and you know here's your snow fun playlist and things like that they looked at their brand through this lens of helping instead of selling and that's the way that they were able to bridge the gap and so most of the organizations that did a great job during covid were the ones that really sort of dug into the core dna that already existed within their brand and actions speak louder than marketing they showed up in a way that was authentic and sincere and aligned with their brands the brands that didn't do well were the like fifty thousand brands out there that all ran the same television commercial and i know you guys know the one i'm talking about it starts with like tinkly piano music and you know the healthcare workers taking off their masks and then hashtag we're in this together and then people standing on their porches like you know clapping and banging pots and pans like these television commercials were virtually indistinguishable from each other right that's because they didn't know what to say but the brands that had already used their brand as a magnet to attract to them people who were aligned with their values and beliefs were the ones that were able to endure the crisis. I know that was a very long answer to a short question, but I always like to explain that to people. I like it. Okay, Deb, what do you okay, do? Amy. What do what I do? do? Yeah, you. What do I do? Um, I do a couple of things. I am the chief cook and bottle wash and zookeeper of a company called Soul Marketing uh, with headquarters in Austin, Texas. And as the CEO of that company, I mostly get all up into other people's shit and make them crazy. 
but really I'm providing like spiritual and strategic support to this really great little skunk works operation that does brand strategy, market research, and in-market execution for some of the best known brands in the world. Uh, so that's what I do. I also wrote a couple of best-selling books on branding and I travel around the world as a professional speaker. I also speak on zoom and Ami, that's where we met. I think, I think maybe we met at a, like a conference or a speaking engagement or something yeah. like that. So I do some of the same things that you do. But here's the thing that blows me away about you, Deb, and help us understand how you do it. Deb and I are an EO and we always talk about working on our businesses instead of working in our business. I never see you working, Deb. You're always out playing. How the hell do you do that? So, yes, that's true. I I would say at best, I probably work maybe part time a couple hours a day. And I think I think what you're responding to here is the fact that I got to spend my entire ski season last year, five months at my home in Utah where I would just get up early in the morning. I do a little bit of work. I, you know, would, would honor my commitments and, and do the things that I needed to do. And then I would ski all afternoon or like get in the car and drive to Jackson hole or go to Idaho or something like that. Um, the way, the way that I do that, and I'm doing that right now, I'm like camping out in someone else's house. Cause I have nowhere else to go. Who's um, house? Couch surfing. Who's house? Uh, Sean's house. It's Sean's house. <laughs> Who's Sean? It's Sean's house. Sean <laughs> is, is the man that I'm not married to that I share a bed with. Ah, I'm not really you. sure what you call that, but it's his uh, house. Man you know, friend or boyfriend? He's a boyfriend, <laughs> but he's a man. He's over 50. Like, it seems weird to call a, a man over 50 your boyfriend, but <laughs> yes, Ami, he's my boyfriend. Um, Love it. Got her, to, got her to go one notch up the commitments for trail today. Good. I know. I'm like, I'm getting closer and closer to getting locked down. Right. So currently he has me locked in his house while he goes to work. So, so anyway, but, but you asked me, how is it that I got to do this? And this wasn't something that came easily to me because probably like other CEOs and entrepreneurs who are listening to this, I, I have been a massive control freak my entire life. I have always felt like I, you know, almost like a, like a debilitating perfectionism about things. And when I graduated from actually doing the work of branding and strategy and marketing into, you know, really leading and driving my company, that was a, that was a difficult transition. And it's probably taken me close to a decade to get to a place where I feel like I can be really hands-off. And the key to this, it's a couple of things for me. One is a couple of years ago, I brought like a, an operating system into my business, both like a strategic and operational operating system into my business through a coach uh, with open and shared accountability. And this is kind of an interesting story, what happened. So about three years ago, we started, we work with the scaling up methodology. We started scaling up and within six months of starting, I had about half my company self-select out of the business and the other half I encouraged to pursue excellence elsewhere because they were not aligned. And um, that was the beginning of getting like the right team on the boat with me. 
And so then I went through like a very well thought out strategic, thoughtful and deliberate process of hiring the right people in the right roles. So establishing the roles, hiring the right people, and then trusting them to do the things that I hired them to do by using this accountability structure and making sure that it was open and shared. And I can't, I can't talk enough about accountability and, and how that works. And then I'll say like the last thing was actually making myself do it, like literally making myself check out. So last winter was really the beginning of this very fun journey where I spend part of my time like working on my business and doing business related things and then working on my own personal brand and writing books and speaking and all that. The part that I do in my business is really around coaching, mentoring, leading, making sure that people in the company understand the methodology that we use and just, you know, sort of being that spiritual and strategic guide. But the key here in order to like actually get that freedom to do the things that I want, I blocked off days on my calendar. I took off to Utah last winter and I had my assistant block off every single day of the week from 12 o'clock on. And so nobody scheduled me, nobody invited me to things, nobody sent me things to review. I just, I literally made myself absent. And when I came back after ski season, my team asked me, they're like, what kind of summer sports do you do? Do you like trail running? Do you like water skiing? How do we get you out of the office more? So, you got the so hint. that's it. I, I, I got the hint. So then I went out and I found a boyfriend so I could get away. <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite summer sport. So how do people find you if they want you? Uh, probably the easiest way to find me is debgabor.com. And there's information on debgabor.com. You can get access to my books, Branding is Sex and Irrational Loyalty. There's videos there. Also, I would encourage people to go and find the free downloads. So for this branding methodology that I explained at the beginning, where you aim at the ideal customer and then you answer the questions, what does it say about them that they that they use your brand, what's the one thing they get from you that they can't get from anyone else, and how do you make them a hero in their own story? Um, all of that is documented in a bunch of interactive free downloads that people can have without obligation. There's a bunch of exercises there that if you were inspired to create a brand that creates irrational loyalty with your customers, you could download all of those worksheets and you can give it a whirl. The other thing is I invite people to reach out to me. I'll meet with anybody. Like we can have a 15 minute meeting, just do your worksheets first. And I'm happy to review them and walk you through them and kick your rear end around a little bit to take it to the next level. But all that stuff is available at debgabor.com. Or Ami, you seem to know where I am all the time. So they could just text you. Or you could just find her on Instagram, cruising around the world. That's right. I'm all over the place. Yeah. So Deb, we're going to end up with you get to ask me one, one question, whatever it is, what do you want to ask me? Huh. I got to keep it clean. I have Very to keep hard it clean. to stop Deb Gabor. I know it is, right? Um, it's weird, you know, like the interviewee becomes the interviewer. Mm -hmm. I, I want to know if, if you could share one insight with an aspiring entrepreneur or an entrepreneur that's really, really struggling, if you could share one insight with them that you think 
would be transformative that isn't like one of the uh one of the cliche kinds of things that we hear all the time like work on your business not in your business or you know leaders read and all, all of those kinds of things or fish where the fish are something that is not cliche that is really unexpected that you think would be a transformative insight for an entrepreneur what would that be i think it would be whether you're getting ready to start up or you're struggling think long and hard about what it is you want to do or what it is you're doing and you truly love it. And if you love it, keep going and don't give up. But if it doesn't really excite you or you're just doing it to do it, but you're not completely passionate about it, go find something else to do. I think that's so important and it's so poignant and it is not something that my parents told me. Like my parents, you know, I'm, I'm the child of, of Eastern European immigrants, like hard, hard, hard working people who were very much like work to live kinds of people. They didn't take a lot of risks. They really weren't living in their zone of genius in their professional lives. Like I never got that advice from my parents. And I wish someone would have told me that earlier because then I wouldn't have wasted so much time corporate side where, you know, I got my soul crushed. And the reason I'm an entrepreneur is because I make a terrible employee. I have problems with authority, unless of course it's me. And if it, if someone had told me like, pick something you love, like get on that horse and ride and just keep riding it. I, I, I feel like my life would be different. So I appreciate that. I met someone who, and I asked what she did. She told me she was a serial entrepreneur. I, I literally for a few minutes thought that she manufactured cereal. <laughs> You're until, like, oh, sweet cereal or granola. Uh, until I realized she, her mission in life was to start multiple companies. Mm -hmm. I never want to start a company again. It's fucking miserable. I love what I do. I'm completely passionate about it. I went through the brutal, brutal many years, and I don't want to do this again. I don't understand. I, I don't understand the psyche of a serial entrepreneur. I'm not passionate well, about the idea of starting a company. I'm passionate about what I do. And there are people who are passionate about starting companies and things like that. There are people who I, I are just it. passionate about starting, right? That's just not and, me. No, and I don't think it's me either. And, you know, one of the things that I struggle with that that is really hard for me right now, and just to bring this conversation full circle about like, how is it that I that I barely ever work? It's really, really hard for me to not work. It's hard for me to not brand. I can't not do it. It is a compulsion for me. I literally love branding, doing branding, talking about branding, reading about branding, speaking about branding and all that kind of stuff. When I do too much branding and I come into the company and I get all up in people's shit and everything, it's not because I want to make other people's lives miserable. It's because it's a compulsion for me. And so I identify very strongly with uh, John Wooden, who was like legendary basketball coach, who always used to say he can't not coach like this was the guy he'd be driving down the mean streets of LA and he'd see kids on the playground playing basketball and he would be like stop the car and he'd jump out and he'd like run to the playground and he would straighten the kids out and he'd like put them in a different position on the court and change the kids hand position so he could shoot better that's me 
So when I get to this place of, I want everyone to like, be able to be in their zone of genius inside my company and perform at their highest potential. It's really hard for me to not brand. I love it so much. So that, I mean, that's my struggle. That's my daily struggle every day is to just like stay out of it and find other outlets for it. So that's why I spend a lot of time bugging you. Love it. Yeah. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you. I love it. Take care and uh, good luck to you. And, uh, you know, I hope everything works out all right with your Audi TT. Thanks for joining us today on AMI Sites with your host, AMI Kassar, the foremost SBA thought leader. Make sure you visit us at multifunding.com where you can meet our advisory team and learn more about how we help entrepreneurs fund their future.